0: We are in the Gospel of John. We started off last week, for the first little bit, and now we're um, moving along in the first chapter. We're kind of taking a bird's eye view and then honing down in on a few things. And I want to mention a a few of those. But before we do that, I'm going to read. And I just want to read from uh, verse 6 to verse 13 of John chapter 1. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. So that through him all might believe he himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through the, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will. But born of God. All right, so as we look at this, we're in what would be called the prologue of the book of John. That's verses 1 through 18. Verses 1 through 18 set up, in a sense, the whole book. You can almost look at them, in a way, as like the table of contents. You know, if you get a book and, you, and, and maybe you're interested in something very specific in that book, you go to the table of contents and you figure, oh, yeah, there, and you go, it tells you where you're at. The table of contents tells you where things are at, and so... We're doing this, we're looking at this bird's eye view, and uh, the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John are this bird's eye prologue view of what's going on and what's coming up. And we see themes in the first 18 verses. We see words that will be repeated and words that lead to themes that will be repeated. And I know this can get... I don't know, I don't want to say very bookish, but it, this, this is not super exciting when you start talking about these kind of things, but it's going to open up things that are going to be incredibly exciting. We're going to see words like life, words like light, words like witness, world, the cosmos, true, that is something that's genuine or authentic. We're going to see words like truth and belief and glory. And for those who are here, you, there was a handout on your chair. For those at home, you can go to our website. You can look this up later. You can go now if you want to. But I want to just give you a quick rundown of 10 of the most prominent themes, and it's at the top of that page. Uh, first one, Jesus' union with the Father. The second one, Jesus as the source of light. Jesus, um, I just repeated two of them, sorry. The, uh, the conflict between light and darkness, the idea of belief, that is faith in Jesus, the rejection of Jesus, it's going to be talked about a lot. The divine regeneration, or new birth is what we call it. The glory of Jesus. Jesus and Moses, or the law, how those two compare. Jesus' unique and supreme revelation of the Father. These things come up over and over and over. And we'll see as we go through the book of John how they impact our lives. How we learn something, not just theologically, not just intellectually, but we learn something that changes us from the inside out. And so we look at those things, and that's what they're telling us. But here's the key, too, to me. What's the heartbeat of the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John? What's the main idea as we look at that prologue? What is the dominant idea that we should keep in the front of our minds, the central truth? No, don't forget this. Because we see in verse 1 that the Word was, was with God and the Word also was God, the deity of Jesus. That's very important, but that's not it. In verse 2, it tells us that Jesus' is light and life, themes that will go throughout John, and throughout the New Testament. And we shouldn't forget them, but that's not it. In verse 14, he talks about the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's a great truth. But is this the heartbeat of those first 18 verses? Because what we have to ask is, okay, we see it's telling us Jesus is God. Now, why is that important? It see, we see that it tells us that Jesus is the life. Jesus is the light. Now, why is that important? Because there's a, what reason did the word Jesus become flesh and dwell among us? And why did any of these events take place? And to answer that question, we've got to pull something out, oh boy, grammar, out of our grammatical toolbox here, something that's very, was, you, you, is used very much back in those days, but not so much back in these days. It's called a chiasm. It comes from the Greek letter chi, which looks like an X. But what it is, it's only half the X. It's like an arrow. And it's this idea that someone, puts, someone writes and puts a text together, They have one, or a part of the text, they have one really important thing they want you to center on. Here's the main thing, and it focuses there. When I was in college or when I was in graduate school, one of the things I learned, um, somebody clued me into this, is that when, when you are in, you're behind and you've got a lot of reading to do and you're trying to catch up and still kind of recognize what's going on, I shouldn't even be sharing this, but here's the key. When you look at a paragraph, the first sentence and the last sentence is the key to the whole paragraph. First sentence and last sentence will tell you what that paragraph is all about. Everything else is filler that just expand, expands on the first and last sentence. And so when I was really behind, I just read first and last sentences of paragraphs as I went through books, just so I could catch up. And, and, and so when, we know that. That's, that's kind of our clue in the English language. In Greek and in Hebrew, oftentimes they did it, and it was like, it was like an arrow. They would build verses to the main point, And then they would fill out all those other verses as they go back. It's called a chiasm. It's used a lot in the Bible. Homer used it in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, In in Beowulf, if anybody had to read Beowulf, I remember reading Beowulf. It was like, man, this is harder than Shakespeare, for crying out loud. If you read Beowulf, he uses chiasm a a number of times. And what it is, is the progression, right, that comes to a point to tell us what the most important part of that section is. All right. So if you have that sheet of paper at home, um, it's, it's, on, it's put online at that sheet of paper. You can see where I have, and I'll put this on the screen like this for people. Yeah. It's got A, B, C, then D, D1, then C1, B1, A1 as it comes back out. And you see I, you've in, I've indented it to make it look like that arrow. And so what it means is that A, B and C all point to D. And A1, B1, C1 all point to D1. It points to that main thought that's in the middle. That's called a chiasm, right? And I think this is what John is using here. And I'm not, this is just not me coming up with this. There are lots of theologians who think this. So in the A thread, A and A1, what are we seeing? We're seeing God and the word together. We're seeing this idea of personal relationship. We're seeing light and light. And and how light makes things known in verse 18, where he says, um, he says, uh, In verse eighteen, I gotta find it. There it is. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is Himself God, in His closest relationship with the Father, has made Him known. Light reveals. So we see there. That's the first. And then, if you go to the B thread, both of the B threads are about John the Baptist in different ways, but they're both about John the Baptist. The C thread then is about the incarnation of Christ, Christ coming to this earth, Christ coming to life, and the response to Him. All right, He was the true light. But people didn't receive him. They didn't want his truth. Man, we do that, don't we? They didn't want his truth. I find that so easy for me to do. Difficult sections of the Bible. I want to skip them. I want to overlook them. I want to change them if I can. They didn't want his truth. And then how did he come into this world? He came in the flesh. He dwelt among us, it says. Not just hanging out and then going home. He dwelt. He became one of us. Jesus knows how you feel. Because he became a human being, just like you, just like me. That is a powerful thing to have a God who knows what it's like to feel pain, to go hungry, to be hurt, to have people um, betray you. He knows the joy of good food. He knows he knows joys. He knows sorrows. He knows how you feel. He becomes one of us. That's unbelievably glorious that he would do that. But that's not the most glorious part because what's happening here is that A section, that B section, that C section, those are all telling us there's a purpose. Why did he come? What was his purpose in doing? Why did he become like me? What was the purpose of that? And we see in the D thread, the main point is our salvation that we can now have the relationship with God that Jesus had. That's what was important to him. That was his purpose. That was his purpose. This is why, the why that we ask for the coming. Why did he come? This is it. This is the why for the whole book of John. Verses 12 and 13 are the point, John is saying, the tip of the spear, what everything's pointing to, and he's saying the rest of this book is going to hit all those themes that point to that because that's what Jesus came for. That's very important for us to remember. So that's the big picture. Now let's dig down a little bit. Let's get some understanding, let's get some application out of this because we're we're at, we're answering the question that John John is answering the question, I should say, who is Jesus? And all life hinges on that question. Who is Jesus? This church Our address is 410 Flannery O'Connor Street. Flannery O'Connor is a famous American writer, a very gifted uh, woman who wrote some incredible short stories, two novels, but some incredible short stories. She wrote a style that's called Southern Gothic. Now, why do they call it that? Because sometimes, no, oftentimes, most of the time, just about all the time, her stories are brutal, and they're graphic. They shake you. You 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 see things, you go, Oh, this is horrible. And and she even wrote about how she goes, people go, my my stories are so brutal and and and, and so graphic. And she goes, and the people who are saying that miss the whole point of my stories. So she's somebody, man, if you ever the one of her short stories that's very famous, it's the book is called a Good Man is Hard to Find, and there's, it's a collection of short stories, and there's a short story in there, a, hard, a Good Man is Hard to Find. It's only about five or six pages, and it is not a fun read, okay? I just want to include, it's brilliant writing, but it's not a fun read. A family is captured by some criminals, one of whom is a particularly mean, evil, and cruel man, and the family is murdered, and there's this conversation that's going on between the grandmother of the family and this man that goes on through it, and, uh, and she keeps saying, she keeps hoping, He's a, you're a good man, you won't do this, you won't do this. And she's this southern lady who was very much into her standing and her class and her status, and it's all being ripped to shreds. And she's begging him not to do these things, and she's bringing up God and Jesus. And this man says, Jesus, Jesus has thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for, there's nothing for you to do but to throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then it's nothing for you to, for you to do. There's, if Jesus isn't alive, wasn't alive, there's nothing for you to do, but enjoy the few minutes you've got left the best way you can by killing somebody or burning down their house or doing some other kind of meanness to them. There is no pleasure but the pleasure of meanness see, everybody skips past that. What they don't see is what she's saying there. She's saying, this man has identified the point. He's identified who is Jesus. What's the point of Jesus? What's the purpose of Jesus? And he's saying, if there's no Jesus, then life is totally meaningless. So who's to tell me that if I, I shouldn't get pleasure from being mean? Who tells me that? He says, I got the gun. And the man with the gun calls the shots. It's that same old thing, you know, people say, well, you shouldn't do that. And people say, well, who says so? Who died and made you the leader of this place? You know, and and she nails it with that. Everybody has to make a decision about this question. Who is Jesus? And everyone does. Everyone does. This man who is a hardened criminal, he made a decision. I don't believe him. So my only pleasure is just whatever pleasure I get out of being mean to people. Some of the big themes in this prologue will be many of them, all of them, basically. They get developed as we go through the book. But I want you to see just a couple. First one, this is one of those things that hits us hard when the Bible says it. We are spiritually dead. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. We're spiritually dead. A dead person doesn't have life, doesn't have the signs of life. What are the what are, what are signs? Reaction to stimuli. No movement, no growth, no sensitivity. And the Bible says we're spiritually dead. We have no reactions to the stimuli of the truth of God's Word to the sinfulness of human beings, to the death of Christ, as all those things. To a spiritually alive human being, the truths of God' word, truths of God's words become something that interests them or stimulates them or convicts them or thrills them or challenges them. Or often we say, I never saw that before. Why didn't I see that before? Why? Because now I'm alive and I see it. I mean, you, you, and, and as we grow, that's the sign of life. We start seeing things we never saw before. Not too long ago, we do this thing um, here. we got to do another. It's been a while. I call it Not a Message, Just a Thought. And it's like anywhere from four to eight minutes on just little things in the Bible that I just am intrigued by. I'm not going to make a sermon out of it, but I think it's really cool. And I did one not too long ago called Shiloh. And I'm not going to tell you it because you need to go look at it. But it was one of those things where I said, I've never seen this before in my life. I've read this verse, and I've never seen this before. That's a sign of life for us. The Word of God, it intrigues us. It, it, it comforts us. It, it kicks us sometimes. It, it challenges us. That's a sign that you're alive. Now, we naturally oftentimes want to soften the message because you know, saying you're dead is kind of shocking and final. And I had a guy one time say, why can't you just say people are sick? People are sick and they need the physician, the great physician, to help them get better. And I told them it's because the Bible doesn't say it. The Bible says we're dead. We're not sick in our sins. We're not hurting in our sins. Although sins can make us sick and sins can hurt us and sins can disable us and sins can get us on the wrong. but, But we're dead in our sins. We need a new life. We need a new birth. And so the hard news the Bible puts before us is this. We're spiritually dead apart from Christ. Without Him, you're like a statue of yourself. Everybody sees and recognizes, but you just are not living at your full capacity because you're just a statue. Whenever I talk about that, I think of Doctor Who and those weeping statues, and it scares me to death. Those are scary if you ever watch that. We see what you are, but you're not fully you. So you're spiritually dead. What's the second thing? We need a new life we need a new life. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. And so he's telling us something here. He's saying we need this new life, this, these big themes throughout the Bible. We're spiritually dead. We need this new life. And he, and he gives us, he says, not by natural descent, not by human decision, not, not by a husband's will. It literally is, is a man's will and has something to the idea of some sort of a leader. Um, and so natural descent literally is just born of blood. The Jews really believe that the mingling of the two bloods was the most important thing of a, a man and a woman. Two bloods are mingled and, and, uh, and, and a child comes into being because of that. So that was huge to them. So when he says not born of blood... That is a direct attack to the Jewish thought. And then he says, not a human decision. That is two people deciding, you know, we're going to have sex. We're going to have, there's the, we're, we're hoping to have a baby. Right? And so he's saying it's not born of blood. It's not two people's will. And it's not involving a man, a leader Some sort of person who's ahead of others. Now, this is how that would come out to the Jews. The Jews would say, and they did, they said to Jesus, we're the sons of Abraham. We're the sons of Abraham. That's the descent of blood. That's the man that we look to. We're the sons of Abraham. And all three of those things that he says there are piled up to show that the Jewish idea of their relationship with God is not correct. They're banking on their bloodlines. They're banking on their clan. They're banking on their history, their genealogy. And he's saying, that's not it. You need a new birth, and it's not that. It's a different kind of birth. And when we realize that we need Jesus, we need that salvation he offers, it's, it's not that we need to turn over a new leaf. It's not that you need to reform your life. It's not that you need religion. None of those. These things, all they do, all those things do is give you a new set of oppressive rules that you can't live up to. I, I meant that I, when I became a Christian, and it was somewhat of a process, but I do. I vividly remember one night laying in my bed and just going, is this it? Is this all there is? Because if this is all there is, this sucks because I've tried it. And this isn't enough. And it's interesting, you know, you know, and I'm looking forward to this night of worship. And the reason I'm looking forward to it is because so oftentimes people who are artists they can express things better than I ever could, right? They can express things. Singers, painters, sculptors, uh, writers, they can express things. Like sometimes you read a book and you go, man, that's me how did he know? How did he do that? And I can remember, I think about this through the years, songs that expressed what I was feeling on my bed that night. In the 1950s, and, and yeah, this is way, this is like 20 years before I was born. Um, kind of not. Uh, in the 1950s, there was a singer named Peggy Lee, and she sang a song called, Is That All There Is? And she said, because if, if that's all there is, and she talked about losing love, and she talked about uh, losing someone very close and, 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 and a person who jilted her, and, all, and she talked about all those things, and she goes, if that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's just bring out the booze. Why? Because she's saying there's no purpose. There's no reason. Pink Floyd, comfortably numb, numbing myself to what I feel. Sticks with the grand illusion. Nine-inch nails with hurt. And I know, I know what you're thinking. There's, you know, for people at home, people here, there's a lot of young people listening, and you're going, Bob, you're, this is like a who's who of 40 years ago, Bob. Or Beck, I'm a loser. Or Jimmy Eat World in 555, he said, I'm doing the things that I'm told every day. I'm doing the things I'm told to do every day, every day, every day. And he says, "Why does it feel like I'm not moving? I'm stuck in place. I'm stuck in place. I'm stuck in place. My life has no meaning." And I can remember that feeling, laying in my bed one night. Is this it? And that's when I realized I need, I need to make a decision. I need to figure out who is Jesus, because he's the only one. And going all the way back to to. Um, to that story, you know, talking about um, um, Flannery O'Connor writing that story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. There's there's this criminal who it dawns on him. It's all about Jesus. If there's a Jesus, then I follow him. If there's not a Jesus, I do whatever feels good to me. Even if it hurts people, who cares? Because there's no meaning. See, we don't need to get better. We need to be spiritually reborn. This is what the Bible's teaching us. Jesus is saying, I'm not trying to make you more ethical. I'm trying to make you alive. There's a big difference there. And it's not like you were unethical before. Maybe you were, maybe you weren't. And yes, becoming more ethical oftentimes is a big byproduct of coming to know Jesus Christ. But Jesus is saying that's not the person because for us, For a spiritually alive person or a person who needs to be born again we need to understand the truth is alive to an ethical person the truth is just this thing this intellectual thing that i say okay that's true i should do that but scripture says truth is alive let the message of christ dwell among you richly let it dwell that word means to live in you as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms hymns and songs from the spirit singing with god Singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. What is he saying there? He's saying the truth is something that's alive because the truth is the Word. It's the logos, it's Jesus. And it takes up residence in us. It makes its home. It lives there. It's a person. An ethical person tries to change to match what they see the truth is. A spiritual person is changed by the truth. The Holy Spirit uses the truth to change you. It's a whole different ballgame and then we begin to see as we grapple with that we begin to see how can I worry when I realize how much God loves me when I begin to realize how much God loves me how can I worry how can I feel guilty when I begin to see his glorious grace and mercy towards me how can I feel worthless when I begin to see how much it cost God to purchase my salvation how can I feel better than others when I realize there is nothing I can do to earn his favor I, I don't have to look up to people, and I, don't, I cannot look down to people. And, a, and, a, and an ethical person always has this undercurrent in their belief, and that is this. I'm carrying my weight in this society. I'm a productive member of society. I'm a responsible person, and I have accomplished much. I live right. And if there were just more like me, the world would be a better place. And the whole point is, it's me, me, me. I, I, I. And ultimately, what they're saying is, I'm at the center. And spiritually alive people realize they need Christ at the center because their accomplishments don't mean anything. And we get that first from the Apostle Paul. Paul is is, is in the middle of this argument, and he's saying, I don't put any confidence in the flesh. And he says, if there's someone, Else, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews in, guard to, in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul says, Look, if anybody can get up and 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 smack talk here in this in this Jewish you know smackdown, it's me. Why? Because I wasn't a proselyte, I wasn't converted to Judaism, I was born in it. That's the blood thing that we were talking about earlier. Paul goes, I was born, I was circumcised in the eighth day the way you're supposed to be. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, of all the tribes of Israel. Only Benjamin was loyal to the house of Judah when there was a split. Benjamin was the only son of Jacob to be born in the promised land, and the Jews thought that was a very high honor. Israel's first king was a Benjamite. Mordecai, when we studied Esther, was a Benjamite. And most of all, the holy city Jerusalem is in the land that was given to the tribe of Benjamin. And they would say, it's because we're the best. We deserve it. So Paul's a Hebrew of Hebrews. His credentials are impeccable. He was a member of the Pharisees, the most strict sect. He was It means one of the separated ones. He studied and trained under the famous Rabbi Gamaliel, who to this day, Jews will say, is one of the top five rabbis in the history of Judaism. Gamaliel. And Paul was his teacher. His, his, uh, his, his uh, student. He was Paul's teacher. He devoted his life to the Old Testament in such a rigorous way that everyone agreed he was a righteous man. He was righteous. He was ethical. He was a good person. He was a he was righteous racially. He was righteous sexually. He was righteous ethnically. He was righteous historically. He was righteous practically in his day-to-day life. And he says in verse 7 and 8, it's all a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom, whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. And I know, you know, this is always, when I used to work with teens, they'd always like, they, they knew this. And so they say, what's the word garbage really mean? And then I have to say, it means poop. Paul says, it's nothing but poop. All those things I did, all those things I had, it's worthless. It's nothing compared to knowing Jesus Christ. All those good things. And he goes, oh, that's a lot of good things. He goes, boy, but when I compare it to Christ, it's a tiny little pile. They're all counted for loss. And this is our problem, oftentimes, as followers of Jesus Christ. We are trusting things to do something for us that they cannot do. We are trusting finances to take care of us. We're trusting our education to give us a better life. We're trusting that our family will reflect well on us and people will think good of us. We're trusting all these things, and these things can't do it. They can't do it. And so, for Paul and us, what are we all my good stuff is not enough, so I can't be proud. And all my sins are paid for and they don't count. It makes me humble, but it gives me great joy. And so, we have this new identity. We're spiritually dead, we need a new life. This new life gives us a, a new identity, and the Bible is full of this. You remember not that long ago, we were in the book of Hosea, and remember what happened. He said, we have these, 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 these people, and he says, they're lo-amai. Ami, thats is, they're not my people, not mine. And God says, and now I'm going to make them mine. And we have these people, they're not loved. lo come on. Now they're going to be loved. I'm going to make them to be loved. Not mine will become mine. Not loved will become loved. And this is so important. We can't, uh, we can't overstate this. Last week in this, we're dealing with words. We're dealing with concepts, with truth that is life and death. We're pulling back the curtain and looking into eternity. This is what we're doing right now as we look at this. This cannot be overstated. It's so magnificent. It's so the magnitude of it, I, I can't express it. I mean, it's like, it's like if I stuck, snuck into your house or let's say into your dorm room and I put an elephant in your room for like four or five hours in the afternoon while you were gone, are you going to tell me that after that elephant's gone and you walk in your room, you're not going to notice it? No, the magnitude of the being, the magnitude of the being demands that you see and act. Your furniture will be rearranged. Your life will be changed. There'll probably be some presents left. You know, I mean, it just be like so such a terrible thing. You will know instantly things have changed. And see, that's the thing: the magnitude of the being demands that you see and act. A Christian is someone in whom God has made His dwelling. The magnitude of this demands a response. So we're spiritually dead. We need a new life. And we receive something. We receive familial rights and privileges. We receive the rights and the privileges of a family member. That's in verse 12. We just read this. But yet to all all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. And we talked about this a number of times in, in different ways about this whole idea. He's, he's expressing there's a new birth. He's expressing that there's an adoption. There's different ways of saying about this. But what are two of the incredibly important, of all the rights? I want to give you just two real quick. First of all, we have instant, intimate access to the Father. My father, um, my father was a scientist, and he was an officer in the Air Force, and he was a no-nonsense kind of a person, and... Um, he was known for that in, in where the offices where he different offices where he worked um, with NASA and different places like that, and and I mean he could be that way at home too. I mean there was times when my dad it was like no nonsense, but there were times, especially when I was little, I can remember times rolling on the floor with my dad, wrestling with my dad, and sometimes I won. I would pin him, and he'd be like, you win. You win, Bobby. I give up. Don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. And I'd be like, yes, I'm the strongest boy in the world. I'm a real boy, you know. <laughs> well, what happened? What happened? The stern man, the scientist, was swallowed up by the father. And he's on the floor being my dad. Not, you know, not... Not somebody working on Project Mercury. Not somebody working on this or working on that. He became my dad. The the stern man, the scientist, was swallowed up by the Father. The judge of the universe has been swallowed up by the Father. When you become a child of God, he's your Father. And the Scripture talks about this new birth, this new adoption that makes this incredible relationship back then. Um, adoption in those days is a little different from adoption in our days. Uh, adoption in those days was often of someone who was older, someone who was in their late teens and early 20s. And, and wh- why it happened sometimes was very rich families. The, the, the father would realize, my, my sons are worthless. My sons are, are ne'er-do-wells. There's a good word, you know. They don't do anything good. They're worthless. I need a son who is Responsible, reliable—who I can give my inheritance to—and so they would look to adopt someone, and they would have someone who would go out and look for them, an intermediary who would go out and look for them, and they would scatter, and they would say, "Listen, I found this—I found this guy. He's—he's he's sharp. He's smart. You know, he's reliable. He's responsible." And they would start to get to know each other a little bit, and he said, "I'm going to adopt him. I'm going to adopt him into my family." And this—this this happened. I mean, Julius Caesar. Uh, um, Adopted, his son became the next Caesar, his adopted son, because his other children were worthless and he wasn't going to put up with them, right? And so that's how it would work. And, and uh, from the person who's being adopted, any debts they or their family have are paid by the father who's looking to adopt. And we see that shown out in Scripture, how our debts are paid. And also back then, if, with your natural kids, if you kicked one of your kids out of the house, you could bring them back. If you kicked them again, you could bring them back. But the third time you kicked them out, of, I'm doing the kicking. See that? This is a, third time, you can't bring them back. They're disowned by law. They lose their inheritance. They lose everything. Right? So kids at home, be careful when your parents kick you out of the house. you're down one. Think of it. And so that's what would happen. And so when you adopted someone, they'd go through this elaborate ceremony where you'd start to adopt and then they'd walk away. And then they'd come right back and they'd start to do the, uh, and then they'd walk away. And then they'd come right back the third time and then sign the papers and the deal is struck. Why? Because when you adopted someone, you could never kick them out. You could never disown them. This is what John, and Paul talks about this a lot too, is telling us about our relationship with the Father. He can never kick you out. You are his child forever, and you have a guaranteed inheritance. So the king of the universe, first of all, we have an intimate access to the Father. Second of all, we're an heir. Everything the king owns is yours. It's an amazing thing, and we can say it lightly, and, and we really just are glib about it. Scripture teaches us that God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. That's incredible. The magnitude of that is mind-boggling. You have the rights and the privileges as an heir, as a child of God. You should rejoice in that. We need to live on the basis of our rights, and we need to remind ourselves of our rights because it helps us when other things crowd in, when we begin to wonder who likes me, when we begin to wonder who does not like me, we begin to wonder, who notices me? We begin to wonder, can I measure up to other people around me? I, I can't seem to measure up. We worry about different things like that. We start worrying about our health. And when we realize that we are an heir to the king, and we have these privileges and rights now, but they're even coming in full effect in eternity when we receive the fullness of our inheritance. It's important to think out the implications of being a daughter of the king, of being a son of the king. And this is what I love. The Christianity, it tells us the truth about ourselves, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It tells us the whole truth. And it tells us the truth about this world we live in, not a bunch of pious platitudes. Christianity doesn't say, behind every guy is a silver lining. No, it doesn't say that. All those things that sometimes people say to you well things can't get much worse Christianity doesn't say that things will get better soon just wait look on the bright side Christianity doesn't say that it tells us the truth this world is sick this world is full of sin we are a part of it we suffer because of it it harms us in in different ways it pulls no punches but it says you're a child of the King ultimately you will, go, you will go into eternity while the world is destroyed, you know, and, and then gets remade, totally remade, but you will last forever. Human beings and the Word of God, that's what lasts forever. And so we learn here, and we'll pick up more next week. The God of the universe loves you so much that he made you the focal point, the tip of the spear. You are what he's aiming. You. And he sent his son. He sent the spirit to accomplish that plan, that purpose that he has. And then he asks us, help me find more. Help me spread this. That's what I want you to do. I don't care what you do for a living. I care what you do with your life. I care about your heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Thanks for this word. God, your word is so strong. It's so true, and it it encourages us, and yet sometimes it slaps us. But it's what we need. And we thank you, Father, that the judge has been swallowed up in the Father, and your love for us knows no bounds. And when you look at us, you see Jesus. That is just great, Lord. Help us to begin to get glimpses of the magnitude of these truths and allow them to change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.